And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Well, we have a really extraordinary show for everyone this morning, here from the land of enchantment, here in uh, gorgeous northern New Mexico. Um, A few days ago, literally, probably, maybe a week or two, we discovered something courtesy of some uh, amateur astronomers, one particular in in Ohio, um, who is a, he builds himself the backyard astronomer, and he posted on Reddit a um, a piece of information that showed that there was this remarkable, incredibly symmetrical circle of objects on the ground. The presumption, of course, was stones that were sitting at the uh, site of the Surveyor 3 landing on the moon, unmanned landing back in 1967, and the unmanned manned Apollo 12 mission to the moon in 1969. And uh, he didn't do anything more. He just kind of put up the links. He uh, had a a link to the Chandrayaan 2 orbiter uh, website from the Indians, the Indian Space Agency, and uh, he left it at that. So I noticed that instantly because, of course, of uh, my measurements of uh, Stonehenge with Robin and our long discussions with uh, Maria Wheatley. And I realized that maybe, just maybe, this amateur astronomer had discovered something really extraordinary, which was the uh, presence of some kind of ancient circle of stones or something else in a place where, of course, it has no business being, and that was on the moon. So I kind of went into the measurements and did some work and realized that uh, this thing is pretty extraordinary at so many different levels. So we did one show that was a couple, three weeks ago, and now we're going to do part two because in the interim, we have found new information and including as part of uh, uh, my efforts at a first kind of crude alignment, there are structures, and I use that term very carefully because I, they don't look like when you get the close-up images from the Apollo 12 surface Hasselblads. They don't look, a lot of them, like rocks. They look like fashioned sculptures of some kind, or in a couple of instances, they look like uh, pieces of machinery that have been laid down on the lunar surface and look like some kind of geometric pointer to something. Anyway, we're going to talk tonight about part two, the data that we have learned in the several days, maybe a week or two since we did the first show. But we have so much else to cover tonight that I obviously want to get into that first, and then we will move into the uh, bulk of tonight's uh, show, our program. We have a very interesting panel assembled to discuss this data. Some have done some original research, and we will present that. And um, anyway, we'll just see how the evening progresses. But tonight is a very special time because we've got as one of the central objects of this monument 
or marker or whatever artificial thing it was, we've got something that looks for all the world like a genuine building on the moon. And as I said in the, uh, the, in the blog talk promo, if you find something that's unmistakably architectural, it only takes one to completely shatter the illusion that we are the only consciousness on earth and that we have ever been the only consciousness on earth. Because one of the milder forms of hypothesis is that if we're not looking at something left by genuine ETs, that is genuine extraterrestrials, we're looking at something from a previous high-tech terrestrial civilization right here on Earth, which went to the moon, found all kinds of things, decided to build this monument and leave it for future generations in terms of an extraordinary period of time. Anyway, that's all ahead of us. Let me kind of get to some news tonight. Uh, obviously, the the shattering catastrophe going on in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas is still going on. And the death toll on both sides is just, it, it's just unbelievable. And obviously, we're not going to spend time tonight talking about it, except in this reference. As I have said for many years, if not decades, the only solution to the human race tearing itself apart of killing other members of the human family is to find something exterior, some outside intelligence, some outside influence, some outside reality, which will put humans on earth finally back into their proper context. And I will underscore that tonight as we present this evidence and it is building inevitably toward official understanding and sanction and admission that we are not alone, which of course is going to be the subject of a lot of my discussion tomorrow night with Steve Bassett, who has just launched a new initiative in Hollywood, uh, which we're going to talk about extensively for three hours tomorrow night. These two programs are kind of bookends because although an enormous part of the world that's paying attention to extraterrestrial uh, goings-on, think in terms of beings, UFOs, spaceships, maybe even dimensional visitors, whatever. Our work for all these years has been focused very carefully on artifacts, ancient ruin, perchance ancient libraries. Because if I've often said, UFOs are extraordinarily controversial, extraordinarily you know, prone to fake news at every level you can imagine. But ruins and artifacts and libraries elsewhere in the solar system, they stand still. All you have to do is find them. And once you've found them, all you have to do, not trivial, is to get the uh, scientific community to admit that they've been found. So item number one, for those of you who are new to the show, uh, you're on an internet connection, I presume, because our uh, broadcast from terrestrial radio takes place on a delayed basis through KCAA in Southern California. 
So if you're on the internet and you're on your smartphone or on a computer, you go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our website, click on tonight's banner, which says very grandly, but very accurately, what's the purpose of the ancient building enterprise just discovered on? And there is an enlarged image of it. I mean, look at that geometry. If you found that anywhere on Earth, there would be zero debate or discussion or controversy over the fact that it's a building. In fact, it's a complex building. It's got components that are very interesting in and of themselves, which we will discuss uh, later on in the program. But since it's not on Earth, since it's on the moon and the canonical position of NASA and every other National Space Agency is, we're all alone. The only folks that are here are us, and we have no other companions or company anywhere in the galaxy or beyond. The statement that it's an ancient lunar building, it's not very big, it's maybe seven feet long, it's about five feet high. It's substantial. It would make a really useful you know, outdoor shed for somebody, uh, either on a farm or in suburbia. But the fact that it's not on Earth and it's on the moon, of course, makes everybody go, oh, it can't be what it looks like, can it? Tonight, we're going to provide corroborating data that, in fact, it is. In fact, we even may be able to get into some discussion of, as I said in the title, what its purpose might have been so that is for uh, our, our our future discussion so if you go to that banner and click on it that will take you to the guest page and all you have to do my guest page is not coming up properly i think there's a bit out of uh, out of out of order i cannot seem to get the uh, guest page to come up so there we are there we are okay um, the first item, of course, is about the war in, uh, in uh, Israel and Gaza, which by any measure is shatteringly catastrophic. Something like 10,000 plus people, about a third of them children, have now died. And needlessly, totally needlessly. Um, the reason I have an item in the first item for news tonight about Obama is because tonight also happens to be the fifth anniversary since the American people elected the first black president in history. And all of us that night looked forward to ascending heights of equality, of truth, of democracy, of the adjudication of, of differences by means of negotiation and compromise all of which we're not seeing at all in the Middle East tonight. And so Obama wrote an op-ed on the 15th anniversary of his election as uh, president. And you can see it there in item number one. Item number two, before we move on to the substance of tonight's discussion, uh, it's daylight savings time. And it, uh, it enters our consciousness here at 2 a.m. in the land of enchantment in the mountain time. Uh, back east, it's uh, already the mountain. It's already a daylight savings time. We remember you spring forward, 
you fall back. So after the show, if you're listening here in mountain time zones or to the west of us in Pacific, you will at 2 a.m., you will turn your clock one hour backward. If you're back east, you already should have done so. Uh, Item number three. While we are looking intensively now at two stunning breakthroughs regarding our research vis-a-vis the moon, one being this lunar Stonehenge, which just gets more and more and more interesting, and the other being the discovery uh, several weeks ago that the astronauts inadvertently, when they brought 842 pounds of rock samples back from the Apollo missions to the moon, they inadvertently, at least I'm certain the crew had no idea, they inadvertently brought something like uh, several hundred pounds in those rocks of beautiful, extraordinary, exquisitely geometric, machine-looking, high-tech artifacts, which, because of random impacts on the moon, creating the bulk of the moon rocks that the Apollo crews brought home, namely what are called breccias, which are basically smashed together fragments of other rock on the surface and regolith and materials that are, you know, the result of eons of micrometeorite bombardment. In those Brescia lunar samples, rocks weighing several pounds and more in individual cases, because of the thin sections, the slicing and dicing of the rocks in the lunar receiving laboratory, and in accredited laboratories all around the world to which uh, NASA has loaned samples for independent analysis, according to our research and our discovery, there are countless fragments of micro machines, circuits, bits and pieces of broken mechanical engineering, circuitry, chips, wires, everything smushed together in these rocks. And we have issued a challenge called the Avi Loeb Challenge, which is basically challenging Dr. Avi Loeb, astronomer at Harvard who has pioneered in the mainstream and looking into the potential for ET artifacts uh, here on Earth or in the solar system. Remember, he was the second uh, scientist to uh, enunciate the idea that Oumuamua was an interstellar visitor, who was the first. Programs, records uh, are ample evidence that we were the first to postulate that such an extraordinary outre idea was in fact real. Abby was second. And we've been trying to get Abby Loeb on the show to discuss this and many other things for, well, many years now, at least a couple, three years. And he has turned us down repeatedly. Well, this week... We had a breakthrough. I was able to reach a major network science editor who I have known for many, many years. I am laying out to him as we speak um, the Abby Loeb challenge. He knows Dr. Loeb. He knows me. He is going to attempt to put the two of us together so we can move forward. And maybe by next weekend, by next uh Saturday or Sunday show, we will have some substantive new news to report on the Abby Loeb Challenge. 
The problem with the moon is, of course, it's right next door. We think, we meaning the general culture, the general population, because of Apollo and all the unmanned spacecraft sent by NASA and other state-sponsored scientific missions, we think we know the moon. I guarantee you, we do not know the moon. And tonight's subject is going to be front and center with evidence extending and exploring exactly how much we do not know about our lunar neighbor right next door. However, while we are preoccupied with the moon, with the 842 pounds of potential, you know, ancient artifacts from ET super high technology uh, occupation of the lunar surface, and we're looking at the realities and implications of this really extraordinary lunar Stonehenge, NASA is en route through a mission called Lucy, named after the hominid fossil found in Africa many decades ago by Don Johnson, who's an anthropologist, um, because when they found the fossil, which they are postulating as part of the human lineage in the fossil record, um, on the camp radio, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was playing. So Johnson decided to call his fossil hominid Lucy. And by metonymy, we can follow the logic here, NASA has decided to name this ongoing mission, this unmanned billion-dollar mission, to the uh, Trojan asteroids. And we'll explain what that means in a moment. Uh, Lucy as well. And the reasoning is very simple. Um, Lucy on Earth, the hominid, the fossil, represents inquiries into ancient human history, origins. And the Lucy space mission, visiting a sequence of asteroids from pretty much in the main belt all the way to the orbit of Jupiter, to visit both the asteroids before and after in Jupiter's orbit, the so-called 60-degree Trojan orbits, over the next decade or more, it will visit a variety of anomalously interesting objects that have never been visited before, certainly in close-up flybys or in close orbit, and that is the ultimate mission of the Lucy uh, unmanned spacecraft pursuing its journey toward Jupiter's orbit tonight. Well, en route on the way, uh, Lucy, the spacecraft, has been programmed to fly relatively close by two main belt asteroids, chunks of rock in the model orbiting the sun like separate little planetoids, which is another alternate name for asteroids. The first such encounter took place a couple days ago on November 1st, and it was named Dinkinish, and if you think that's a made-up name, no, it's actually a Middle Eastern name, which means marvelous. I, I'm, I forget which language it means marvelous in. Someone, I'm sure, will uh, apprise me of that through Skype. But in the meantime, they flew, they being NASA, this spacecraft, 270 miles uh, close to Dinkinesh, which is only about half a mile across, less than a mile, about one kilometer. 
and they returned one image. So if you click on item number three, this will give you an overall perspective of the Lucy mission, the Lucy flyby a couple days ago of the quote asteroid Dinkinish. And then in item number four, here is one of our image enhancements of the data that NASA has provided, because of course it turns out if you look closely, the Dinkinish A, a satellite, you can see that in an animation that NASA published in item number three. And it also appears to have uh, a very special kind of satellite, i.e. it looks to be a 500 foot wide spaceship. How do, can we tell? Look at the enhanced close-up that I was re rendered here at the Enterprise mission in item number four. Both the primary, the half-mile-wide object, which is the big one, and the small one, the 500-foot-wide object, which is uh, the, the satellite or the moon orbiting Dinkinish, uh, they both look to be very ancient, very eroded, very, very eroded, and thus very old spaceships. How can we tell? Because we go back to Carl Sagan's dictum, which is that intelligent life, be it on Earth or anywhere, by implication, first manifests itself through the geometric regularity of its designs. Dinkinish, from its overall shape, look at the symmetries, to the details on its surface, Look at all that rectilinear geometry, particularly at the top, is, cannot be a natural object. It's an ancient eroded spacecraft, which is now being orbited by a much smaller counterpart that in fact in the still, in the freeze frame still that NASA released in number four, appears optically to be joined, literally docked, the smaller object geometric as hell to the larger object geometric as hell. And in fact, the overall shape, once you account for major fragmentation and erosion, particularly of the top, appears to be of the same octahedral bisymmetric geometry of other asteroids that NASA and other space agencies have visited, like Ryugu, visited by the Japanese, and Bennu, which was visited by the NASA unmanned spacecraft mission OSIRIS-REx, which returned samples from the surface of Ryugu earlier uh, last month. And would you believe that for over a month, NASA has been claiming it cannot get into the sample collection box returned from Ryugu containing priceless fragments of this asteroid because, wait for it, they can't open two fasteners on the collection box. They don't have the right screwdriver. Now, if you believe that, I've got a bridge that will sell you really, really, really cheap. This appears to me to be a very interesting kind of dumb excuse to delay the fact that when they open the box, 
from Bennu, what they will find is what we can see in the video of the collection of the samples at, at uh, uh, Bennu itself, which namely is amidst all the random rocks and debris and soil and carbonaceous compounds, there are more little, small, mechanical-looking artifacts. In other words, the surface of Bennu under the um, you know, moon rock model that inadvertently these collisions create, you know, capsules for, in, for in, entombing and imprisoning little bits of high technology that is rampant out there in the solar system. It is not at all implausible based on the close-up images that we have of the material that was not in the collection box inside the larger container, which we'll talk about in more depth next week that in fact they are looking for every excuse not to open up, at least in public, the container because of the extraordinary, stunning technological surprises that they now fear will be discovered inside. And I say that all with a very large caveat around it because my, my real feeling is, of course they opened the box, of course, they looked in. Of course, they found what I've just said. And they can't figure out a plausible cover story to not show the public, the taxpayer, the world, what they brought back. So they're seeking to delay, 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 delay. It appears to be a very common uh, action by people who do not want to be held accountable, at least not just yet. So... On that note, um, I think we should go to our panel. We've got about five minutes till the bottom of the hour. Uh, if you go to the other side of midnight and click on tonight's banner, uh, that will take you to the guest page. Under the guest page, you will see biographies for Holger Eisenberg, Andrew Curry, Ron Gerbron, Rogero Kahlo, Maria Wheatley, Georgia Lambert, and Laura London. And all of these people have very interesting things to add to our exploration tonight of have we in fact discovered a bona fide lunar Stonehenge? And if we have, what in fact uh, is it trying to tell us? So let's see. Who do I want to go to first? Let me see. I'll tell you what, Maria, since you're the uh, resident expert in um, Stonehenge, uh, earthly counterparts uh, all over the globe. Why don't we begin with you? What in the time you've had now, about a couple of weeks, with, I believe, a colleague, what have you discovered? And you only have time for a brief tease because we're at the bottom of the hour. Break coming up. Maria? Oh, dear. I think the time difference between us and Britain may have got Maria. So let me go to Holger. Holger, you've been doing ample work on this background in terms of circles, alignments, and all that. Give us a tease of what you're going to talk about when we come back from the break. Oh, first what I found is uh, the question was uh, on the last show is, 
or did the circle which we saw near Apollo 12 really existed before Apollo 12 or right. was it built by the astronauts maybe? Right. And what I found is that uh, it was already vis clearly visible in the Surveyor 3 images from 1967. I digged out from the NASA archives photos from that, so it really is something really old before any human landing happened there. That was an interesting finding. Well, I found it independently on the uh, lunar orbiter imagery, which was taken even before Surveyor 3 landed. So we now categ know categorically that, in fact, it was there all along. I'll tell you what, let's hold it there. Um, we're at the bottom of the hour. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we will be right back after a word from our sponsor, which, of course, is the other side of midnight. Remember, the show does not stay on the air unless you subscribe and get access to literally thousands of hours of programming, at least a thousand, maybe 1,500 of hours since 19, no, 2015. Actually, technically 2014 was our first special on the flyby of NASA of Pluto. We shall return. Cyberhoodnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. I'm sorry about that. Things are being very bizarre tonight, so huh. do not know why. Okay, Holger, um, yes, before the break, you said you had discovered, and it's really important, it's not trivial, because one of my first thoughts was that the astronauts, in the kind of uh, vein of uh, Edgar Mitchell, who was the uh, lunar module pilot on Apollo 14, uh, in their copious spare time, they didn't really have any, but we, we don't know what all the timeline was, they decided to build a cairn, which is a standard explorer anywhere on earth you know to kind of mark that they have been some historic place or some place no one else has ever been that they put up a loose pile of stones sometimes they look like a pyramid sometimes they will literally make a circle on the ground so my first thought was well the apollo astronauts 
in their copious spare time, took a few moon rocks and arranged them in a circle to kind of leave an immortal fingerprint that humans, i.e. Conrad and Bean, had been there. But you and I independently have now ascertained that this set, this structure, this extraordinary, very, very aligned and methodical and artificial construct existed long before even NASA unmanned spacecraft had gone to the moon. So that's not a trivial confirmation. It's important, especially I was also thinking before it it was built by the Apollo 12, Alan Bean and Pete Conrad, because I was hoping that, <laughs> because I was hoping, because it was looking so strange. Wait, 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 wait. Why, yeah. would you, why would you hope that and not hope that it was built by ETs, which would solve forever the problem, are we alone? The two hypotheses are equal. You just find the data to prove which one is correct. Because I, I take I, it you're I, not quibbling with the idea that this thing is so perfect, it really can't be natural. Definitely. If you see something similar on Earth, you will immediately think it's, it's a man-made, or at least it is not a naturally, randomly created circle of stones like you see any Bronze Age stone circle on Earth. It's not a random effect which can create that. And, and I'm, I am a fan of ancient aliens uh, since decades, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was more inclined to believe that uh, Alan Bean and Pete Conrad built it, but <laughs> I found out now it was existing before. Well, that's not trivial. That's, that's, that's the ball game. That's everything, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, so you, uh, uh, hang on, I, 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 I want to savor this moment. Holger Eisenberg believes that the lunar Stonehenge is in fact an artificial construct built by humans not from Earth or aliens not from Earth. Uh, not exactly. I, I'm, I'm just saying uh, if I would see something like that on Earth, I would think it's not randomly naturally produced. If I see something like that on the moon, uh, then I'm investigating. <laughs> Let's say it this way. Oh, wait, isn't that a double standard? Because if you find this thing on Earth, why would you think it's artificial? Because of its geometry and the fact that we've got quite a few examples, right? If you find the same geometry, even if it's on another planet, why does your criteria change for artificial or natural? How do you produce an alignment circle of 12 components with the central one being the tallest with alignments toward the horizon for specific star settings, risings and settings, and one particular alignment which shows a major geometric opposite, uh, object, you know, just a few tens of feet away and not come to the same conclusion it's artificial, which means if humans didn't do it, somebody else, by definition, some other intelligent beings had to. And, uh... I, I would not even look into the, the alignment. I'm, I'm just seeing it as a circle with a center object. In each part of the circle objects have the same size, almost the same distance to each other, uh, 12 in number. And that alone is, is strange enough to, to uh, motivate for further investigation. And I guess that uh, 
uh, within the 60s, uh, since 1967, we have detailed images of that, that someone else already also looked into that, but we haven't heard anything yet. What do you, what do you, what do you mean? We've got other images, from, you mean from, from Surveyor? Yeah, the Surveyor images, yeah. They well, are you, uh, do, do, you, do we have any data that the Surveyor team at JPL even notice this because the surveyor imagery that I've looked at is so bad, is so light, you know, uh, leaked because of taking pictures toward the sun because of the poor uh, bandwidth and signal to noise ratio of transmitting television back from the moon back in the 60s that when I, if, if I did not know this thing was there, I would from the surveyor data never have a clue. Yeah, that uh, quality is the other topic, and indeed, it was really difficult for for me to identify it on the surveyor three images. I knew it, the position I knew from the Apollo, from the Indian uh, Chandrayaan two images. I knew the exact position uh, relative to the surveyor lander, but it took me uh, almost two weeks to identify it on the surveyor three images because of the low quality of the existing images. Well, one of the and mysteries my, uh, one of the mysteries yeah. I have is we know for the last fifty years there has been this intense global controversy. I think deliberately started. I think deliberately started by NASA because I was at JPL when the guy is walking around. Remember the guy in the in the uh, big raincoat who's handing out pamphlets saying that we never land on the moon even during Apollo eleven. He's at JPL, he's at NASA, handing out to all the press these leaflets, and it's basically claiming that Apollo 11 is being done, faked on a soundstage somewhere in Nevada. So NASA has been hosting in their own press room people who've been basically spreading fake news about Apollo from the beginning. So over the decades since Apollo, there's built up this very significant part of the population who have been lured, who've been seduced by the fake news that Apollo never never existed, to thinking that NASA faked it somewhere in a studio somewhere on Earth. So when NASA sent a spacecraft in 2009 called Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter with an extraordinarily powerful telescope, basically looking down at the moon, taking very high resolution pictures with images showing objects the size of inches. Everyone looked forward to LRO, to the imagery from Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, confirming by looking down from orbit at each of the Apollo landing sites. And Apollo 12 was on the list. I have looked at the archived images, even in the early Apollo, uh, Apollo site imagery, by LRO, and even its initial orbit, they later lowered the orbit down to about 13 miles, but even in the 60-mile orbit, this remarkable circle of objects or stones laid out like a miniature Stonehenge, about 30 feet across, is clearly visible on the overhead imagery from NASA's own spacecraft. But nobody made a mention. No NASA scientist said, hey, guys, look at that. Nobody wrote papers. Nobody did any research. Nobody wrote about it on Twitter. 
it became an absolute non-event until the Indian mission with the orbiting of Chandrayaan-2 back in, I think, 2019, took its much better than LRO imagery of the Apollo sites, seeking to obviously confirm the fake story that we didn't land on the moon with real data that show that we did. And as part of the Chandrayaan-2 orbiter, unmanned orbiter looking down, taking really exquisite high-resolution images, this circle of objects, this little Stonehenge or circle of, of, of alignment stones, like they appear to be on Earth, blatantly stands out. In fact, you can see the scale of the stone circle in the orbital images by just comparing it to the shadow of the known width and height of the lunar module descent in, uh, you know, descent stage lying like about 200 feet to the northwest, uh, uh, west-northwest on the moon. And so there's no doubt that NASA has seen this and they have been stunningly silent about what could be the most important discovery of the Apollo missions ever. Holger? That, that, that surprised me even more that I, I myself did not notice it when the, the discussion started about the lunar reconnaissance uh, images in uh, 2009. I looked at them, but never noticed it. And then even not didn't notice it at the Chandrayaan images when they were released in 21, 2021. And only noticed it a few weeks ago then when that was reposted on Twitter and uh, then Reddit. That uh, was the first time I took. I saw it and when, when taking a closer look at those images, it was, was even more surprised for me. And about the, the image polity, uh, should yeah, we why, quickly go why, back why, to where I see? Why don't we go to your images in radio with pictures and go through your exhibits? Because you, you basically lay out why it's very hard to have ever noticed this on the surveyor data. Yeah, uh, first uh, for for the listeners, uh, the the circle is visit, uh, visible in your items number six and item number eleven and uh, items in between chat items and uh, in my item number two, the second image that is an old image from Surveyor three, nineteen sixty seven. And interestingly, you see the low quality there, and you only notice the circle which I marked there in the image if you exactly knew the position from other uh, probes and images. So it was difficult to identify, but finally I found it. But uh, the interesting part about this image from Surveyor is that it was the fourth image after landing it took. And it took it uh, uh, for, no, multiple hours after landing that fourth image. The first three images were taken about one hour after landing directly. And then they had a break in image recording at least. And that fourth image was then recorded at uh, 1 a.m. in the morning and the landing was 4 p.m. in the afternoon before. So there was a multiple hour break in image recording until they recorded 
the next image, and that next image was the one with the circle, and it was the first image showing the horizon. So, so this, really is, this, is your, this is your item number two. Correct, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, it's there, not only no special way because that, we see the ring here. Without your little uh, white circle, which outlines where the circle is on the on the lunar landscape in Surveyor Crater, there's no way you would have ever noticed that as unusual. No way. In the photo, indeed, it is difficult. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, I only noticed it because I knew the position well, you knew of exactly, the horizon. Exactly, knew, yeah. You knew where it was. Yeah, and uh, here, um, for, for our listeners here in the image, you see the... The shadow of the central object, it's much longer than the shadow of all the other objects around it. And that is the central stone of the circle. And uh, that, that was the final uh, decision factor. But uh, the location was providing the, the evidence and where it was located on the horizon, the horizon location in degrees. And about the quality, it's interesting. The first 50 images from Surveyor were taken in low quality, 200 lines per image, so TV lines per image. That is similar to a VHS, old VHS tape recording quality. And then after 50 images, after a few days, was it even, they switched to the high resolution mode of 600 lines. That is a big improvement, three well, times it, better. It's a factor of three improvement, yeah. Yeah, that would be much better. And uh, the image, here, the item two image, which we look at, is uh, a wide angle image. And they had a second uh, objective at the camera, a second lens. They later switched to the narrow angle telephoto lens. I know it, it was a zoom lens, actually, yeah. but they all only operated the zoom lens at wide angle and uh, tailor at uh, narrow angle at two uh, settings, the widest and the narrowest. And then they switched to the narrow view after maybe a few hours or days. And that was then four to five times higher resolution by just the lens. So we have four times uh, zoom magnification with the lens. Later, we have the three times higher resolution, so we have we would have uh, 12 times higher resolution of later images if they exist. But I have not found any yet. Didn't you discover there's a current project uh, uh, by one engineer who actually probably is in his 90s, who's working as part of a citizen scientist a digitization project to convert the uh, analog data from uh, surveyor uh, into digital data for display. And aren't they on track to have that project completed, I think, by early next year? Yes, uh, that is uh, Justin Renelson, Renelson, Justin Renelson, who worked at JPL during the landing of surveyor in 1967. And he uh, worked as a responsible engineer for the TV camera on that very mission. <laughs> and he presented in 2016 at JPL, telling about his experience as engineer and really telling all the technical details about the cameras. He also showed uh, videos uh, assembled from multiple frames from the camera never seen before. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's linked at item one in my items. That was a nice archive work there in his, uh, I guess his son 
uh, copied it to YouTube. And Justin uh, worked as engineer at JPL back then. He showed uh, his, his personal interest. He was later than the, the elevated dust uh, uh, cloud moving with uh, sunset terminator shadow on the moon that is also shown in the item one here that he is showing late in the video. And we uh, uh, reported about uh, his work. And he is also part of the group which is digitizing all the surveyor missions from all five uh, successful surveyor landings that are uh, uh, 6,000 images from surveyor three and uh, about the same number of images for all other four landers. And he is working with uh, now an additional student and other uh, retired engineers um, on digitizing all surveyor images. And what I heard is that they plan to release it next spring in the PDS database. Hmm. You know, by the way, that the idea that that bright line on the horizon in the surveyor images, and there's more than just surveyor uh, three imagery, there's surveyor um, seven, there's surveyor one, I don't know about the others, but they all show this brightness, and it's been pretty conclusively ruled out that it is levitating dust. Of course, I have my own model as to what it is. It's the bottoms of the dome seen in front uh, forward scattering. Uh, when the sun has set at the observer site, the cameras at their low light level can photograph the scattering of light from the sun off the glass structures that are above the horizon, and that's what we're seeing. But obviously, I don't think you're willing to go there, so we won't go there. Yeah, what it is, uh, nobody knows exactly. Uh, what most engineers think, I also think that it is uh, related to electrostatic effects of the light on the sunlit surface and creating a charge on the surface, which is opposite to the charge on the on the night well, side. Well, wait, 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 Holger, <laughs> NASA sent a whole mission called LADEE which is an acronym, you know, into lunar orbit to photograph these dawn and dust parts of the lunar terminator to see if there was any elevated electrostatic dust. And they found none, zero, nada. So, you know, and you can look at the papers up online. If it's not electrostatic dust by elimination, again, my, my one white crow idea, by elimination, you are driven to the absolutely controversial and very intensely argued idea that there are structures on the moon that no one officially is yet acknowledging that in fact will scatter light into the shadow region and the surveyor missions were the first and I did not put up my version because I've got an extraordinary surveyor three image showing stunning geometric details in this glass over the horizon lit by the sun and of course, in a cloud of amorphous dust, you can't possibly have geometry. What, uh, it, it's strange, uh, what, but we need to find out what it is. And well, maybe at what, the Holger, at what point, data, at, at what yeah. point do we find out? Or we do, a, do we have enough evidence now to make a decision, except people simply don't want to go to where the decision would go, so they delay and defer and demur and say, well, we need more data at some point hey, science was that ron yeah go ahead yeah I, I, this is ron Gervon. yeah no i i don't i i i do not want to derail what your point you're getting to there i just wanted to ask both of you 
Hi, Holger. Uh, is it not fairly established at this point that there's an awful lot of silicates and glass, for want of a better word, on, uh, on the surface of the moon? You know, just as dust, as little spherules, as whatever you want. Well, in terms but, of uh, the analysis of the Apollo samples and in terms of the few ounces that the Russians, the Soviet Union, brought back by unmanned robots to Moscow, about uh-huh. half the weight of the of the finds, the so-called uh, regolith, the lunar dirt, is mm-hmm. little glass beads and shards and bits of silicon dioxide as glass. And it is explained by the mainstream as the as impact glass, meaning that if you, <clears throat> you know, smash objects into the lunar surface at hypervelocity, tens of miles per second, you create intense little sparks of heat. The heat will fuse elements like silicon and oxygen together and create what's called impact glass. And there are ready examples on some of the samples the astronauts brought back of, you know, rocks that are splashed with molten glass from nearby impacts. So it's not the idea that the glass on the surface is not unknown. It's just the idea that what we're seeing is structured glass over the horizon, still lit by sunlight, where the surveyor cameras were in darkness and taking long exposures, looking for the sun's corona. And instead they found the incredible geometry towering miles up in the images that we processed this glass structure around the moon seen from underneath. And until there is a political solution, until some other new mission, either manned or unmanned, lands on the moon, takes imagery, takes data, and says in the scientific community, there is a dome around the moon, nobody is willing to believe it, regardless of the evidence. No, they but they'll at least goals. go as I far as they are, glass. They are, they are, uh, tiny. Oh, sorry, Ron. <laughs> yes. No, no, go ahead, Holger. I was leading in the pass it back to you. Anyway. I, uh, I agree that they are tiny domes in the form of glass spherules because they are not only glass beads, <laughs> so none of these, but they are uh, spherules. Oh, come on, are, Holger. That, you know, that's, they, a, that's... They are, it's a fact because they, they lower the density of the surface soil. See, I guess I, I guess I need, and we're about uh, five minutes from the top of the hour, I guess I need to ask the question, an epistemological question. Epistemology, you know, the science of how do we know what we know? How do we know what's on the moon holder apart from the official NASA and other state space imaging systems that have been there? What's our criteria for scientific truth as opposed to political truth? We, we could Ninja. measure it from Earth with radar, but radar is, is strange. Radar on the moon that is, is a problem, apparently, which caused many landing failures in the past, even today, because uh, it's, uh, the moon is uh, difficult to, to see in radar even, because it has a low... Um, electric, di- uh, low dielectricity. Uh, it's interesting that it's related to the, to the glass spherules. Are you saying that di- a dielectric coefficient is necessary for radar to work? 
Uh, yes, it, it is related to radar reflection, and it has oh. a dielectric coefficient of three only, because it's so dry and has these spherules. It's three only that is similar to to a good uh, insulator in material and capacitors. But if you have and enough example, power, if you have enough power, it doesn't matter how inefficient the surface is reflecting radar of a particular wavelength yes. or frequency. It will produce an echo, and the sensor systems are so sensitive that even if it's only a dielectric of three, it will easily record, you know, that echo. The problem is, if you have a dome, you have <clears throat> multiple echoes, multiple from different layers, which will confuse the computer, which is only programmed to imagine a reflection from the lunar surface. And that's why all these subsequent missions in my model have failed, because they have failed to account or the multiple reflections of their landing radar systems. The um, Indians succeeded because whether they copied us or not, they built in different models into the computer to account for different echoes, and they were able to safely navigate the spurious signals and land near the South Pole of the moon at, by the way, 19.5 degrees from the South Pole. Hey, Richard, did not they document during the uh, Chandrayaan-3 uh, landing uh, that they had got, they had had to account for uh, multiple and somewhat mm -hmm. serious signaling <clears throat> feedback? Yeah, I yep. thought so. Yep. Just look it up. They, so, they, Google, Google is your they, friend. <laughs> yeah, they documented it. They just didn't, uh, they just said, well, that happened. Well, they well Where exactly. They they said that they didn't say why that happened, but the computer algorithms were flexible enough, you know, AI, that they were able mm -hmm. to work around what they did not expect because they, their farthest out models, given their previous catastrophe of Chandrayaan II's lander, they allowed mm -hmm. for the unthinkable, and they were able to successfully land on the moon an unmanned spacecraft. Hey, we are literally at the top of the hour. So let us defer further conversation. My guest this morning so far, Holger Eisenberg and uh, Ron Gerbron. We have many other members of our panel who will be breaking in, commenting, having their own ideas. And some of them will be joining us shortly, will have their own independent analysis of the lunar Stonehenge data. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, 
you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, November 4th, the 15th anniversary of the election of Barack Obama as President of the United States. You might want to read his opinion piece, which is appropriately scathing of what is going on in the Middle East. It's insane. I mean, what more can you say? It's insane. Both what Hamas did and what Israel is doing in reverse. It is insane. And maybe next weekend we will have a show on a potential way out of this box, of this trap. Uh, I'm working on this uh, behind the scenes, and I'll know more maybe by tomorrow night. So I don't want to get ahead of my skis here. Returning to our subject tonight, have we discovered a bona fide lunar stonehenge on the moon? Uh, Let me bring in Georgia Lambert, who is, as you know, is our resident metaphysician, and it was said to me several times in the last few days when I said, I want you on Saturday night. She says, well, I'm not quite sure this is in my wheelhouse. So let me ask you, as an artist, Georgia is a brilliant, brilliant artist, and all you have to do is go back to some of the last shows where she's been on, and we've posted some of her artwork. As an artist, you need to apprehend the world if you're going to represent it either literally or symbolically. So when you look at this extraordinary 30-foot-wide collection of stones or whatever on that lunar landscape there at the lip of the Surveyor Crater, what do you see? Hi, Richard. Hi, everybody. Um, I think that if people look at your number 11, Richard, Okay. I think that's one of the best pictures of this circle with its little – obviously, if you were in a plane and you saw something like that, you would figure folks have been down there. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. And the fact that it's 12, as in the houses of the mundane zodiac, that's very significant. Um, or the hands on a terrestrial clock same thing it it's it, it it smacks of intelligence conscious intelligence not just random intelligence um there's another aspect here since we're thinking way out of the box oh please um, please i love it i love it <laughs> this is even further out of the box uh i'll put on my metaphysical hat here um and of course when we get into the realm of metaphysics this None of this can be proven as yet, but it's interesting back stuff. Uh, stuff. 
to what we're finding on the moon. In esoteric and metaphysical tradition, uh, it's believed that every life form has an incarnational cycle. Not just people go in and out of incarnation, but planets do, solar systems do. And there's a tradition that in a previous solar incarnation, where matter was being developed, uh, it reached a high point and then went out of incarnation. And in this solar incarnation, where the soul and consciousness is being developed, it's said that there were remnants from what they call the moon chain, that there was a previous civilization associated with the moon that went out of incarnation, but as souls, some of those souls came in to be part of Earth's humanity during what we call the Atlantean period. So we have something within our human psyche that carries us back to a previous incarnation in a planetary sense. And of course, when I saw this circle, I thought, hmm, is this one more step toward the metaphysical model as well? Well, obviously, if we look at the data and we say that it's so regular, so precise, and we haven't even gotten into the alignments yet, uh, that it has to be artificial. Somebody had to do it. Then the really extraordinary set of questions are, who were they? Why did they do it? When did they do it? And are we, homo sapiens, either directly involved indirectly involved or in the what is it the Blavatsky model that millions of years ago on earth long before homo sapiens there were other intelligent she called them root races which lived in this solar system lived on earth may have occupied the moon that's are we are we looking at that big the most extraordinary controversial idea of all yeah exactly wow uh, it's said that that uh, that humanity has different historical unfolding periods. Humanity became humanity during what is uh, called the Lemurian period in in the vernacular. Um, but the souls from the moon chain, which carried a deep materialistic uh, impress from the previous solar incarnation they were added to Earth's humanity during the Atlantean period, which caused a lot of uproar. So wait, wait, wait. is this kind of like adding a bunch of bad apples to the bunch? Not necessarily bad apples, but apples with a different agenda that had to be included and absorbed. Hmm. It's, it's said in metaphysical circles that Earth's humanity is a really mutt race that all those that could... <laughs> That all of those that could not overcome separateness and other Wait, 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 wait. Do you remember Lady in the Tramp? Here? Who was the star of Lady in the Tramp? <laughs> he was a mutt. Come on. And, of course, the mutts are always uh, genetically uh, healthier, right? Yes. Um, but but the idea is that, that you know, those that, that couldn't overcome separateness and other systems get to come here and work it out, which is why... We've got such a problem on this planet with separateness. It's us against them, whether that be political or religious or any other ideology you could name. Uh, Overcoming separateness 
to the point where we understand that we are part of the one creation. That's the, the big lesson here. And influx from the moon chain was part of that absorption. Hmm. That raises a huge can of worms. Huge. Sure. Of course it does. Gosh. Hey, for those people who may not know exactly what we're talking about, if you look at my number five, it is a planimetric map done by a space fan of the uh, Apollo Lunar Surface Journal run by a brilliant guy named Eric Jones. It shows in terms of LRO imagery, a map with grids showing all of the various structures at the surveyor crater, including toward the bottom on the right, the surveyor spacecraft itself. In the upper left, the uh, descent stage of the lunar module that the Apollo 12 astronauts landed. Uh, Conrad set it down right on the rim of this 650 foot wide crater, which by the way is not a crater. If you look carefully and tilt your head about 45 degrees to the left, it turns out the surveyor crater is a square depression in the landscape that in our model looks much, much more like uh, sunken foundations of an ancient building about twice the size of an average football stadium here on Earth today. And it's incredibly ancient and old and old and old and it's had bombardment by meteors. And um, the, the, the circle is in the upper corner uh, in the northern tip of this loose square, which has kind of irregular boundaries because it's like a sunken depression. And it's interesting that in terms of geometry, not only is it blatantly there, just a couple hundred feet, you know, remnants of the lunar module, <clears throat> but it's in the north corner and that's another geometrically significant position. It could have been anywhere, but it was designed and placed by somebody in the most significant part of the uh, sunken, submerged, buried foundations of, in our model of a very much more ancient structure. So was it, is it a monument to commemorate whatever that much more old structure may have been, um, you know, millions of years ago, if not even before. And certainly in your, you know, long-term reincarnative time scale, Georgia, that yeah. would leave adequate room for beings, for souls to come back and, you know, kind of partake of this terrestrial experience again. And maybe, yeah. and I'm going to really be far out here, it's possible that, you know, Conrad or Bean may have been reincarnative souls who were simply in this form going home, even if they were not consciously aware. Quite possibly. And, and one more metaphysical point here. It's said that at certain initiations, uh, the retrieval of one's past incarnations is part of the process. This is also true of the planet. And the metaphysical model says that the planet itself is at a stage of initiation, which means retrieving its past. All of the past that we've been asleep to, it's starting to wake up, and that's part of the planetary process for us 
as well as whatever else we find out there. See, one of the curious things when I look at number five, which is that kind of landing site map for Apollo 12, the little dark smudgy lines that go around the rim of the crater and then go back to the lunar module on the left, those are the boot prints in the lunar soil, in the regolith, which when you scuff it up, the surface is lightened by exposure to the sun. What's underneath is darker and is turned over by the astronauts hopping along, leaping along under, you know, one-sixth gravity or shuffling along because they had a, a kind of an equipment cart that they couldn't really move very fast uh, in loping loops or looping lopes. So they really kind of turned up the surface and you can see those astronaut trails clearly in this um, image and in other images. What's remarkable, and I noted this in our first show, they show no moving down to the circle slightly below the crest of the crater turned to the lunar module. It's like they purposefully avoided it. But in our assiduous search between Holger and me to find every surface photograph taken either by surveyor or by the lunar uh, crew of Apollo 12, we have found an, an amazing additional set of images that we didn't have when we did our first show. And one of those is number eight. Click on number eight. The beautiful geometric glistening object in the upper left sitting on the rim of the crater is the Apollo Intrepid Lunar Module. And the collection of bright objects arrayed in a ring seen in, uh, in almost in profile in the middle right of the same image, right to the right of the cross on the film, that's the lunar circle. And if you click on it, um, actually, you don't have to click on it. You can go to my next image, which is item number nine. Number nine. This is now the best close-up I've got that I found in Alan Bean's uh, Hasselblad Lunar Surface Photography. The number is AS12-49-7317. This is the best close-up, even though you're much farther away than they eventually, you know, came to this thing. It's the best view of the objects arrayed in the circle, the large objects arrayed outside the circle, but they're all geometrically connected as we're going to get into with the work of uh, Greg Ahrens next week. Greg was unable to finish his work in time, which is to look at the alignments uh, in detail for this show tonight. But by next Saturday, when we maybe do another show on this, he will have his alignments in order. We will have the graphics ready and you will see some astonishing new data from Greg Aronson's research, but we're just not quite ready for prime time tonight. But look at the central object. Look at how anomalous that object is in terms of the length of the shadow compared to the length of all the other objects from their shadows. And given that it's all exposed to the same sun angle, if you have a longer shadow, you have a taller object. So again, geometrically, isn't it interesting that the tallest object in this assemblage of other objects in a geometric circle is the central object of that circle? And again, each of these coincidences needs to be multiplied 
by the odds of all the other coincidences before you arrive at a final qualitative probability that this thing is not natural. In fact, it's artificial. And again, looking at the overheads from Chandrayan, all I had to do was take one look and immediately think of uh, uh, Maria in terms of the countless similar circles she has investigated personally in England and in the rest of Europe. So um, let me go back to Holger. Uh, anything further you want to add? There are too many coincidences lining up. <laughs> if you multiply them, uh, it would be really uh, a, a really small random probability to create this, this circle there at that location and all the findings around we had. And we have not even talked about all uh, but I like to uh, get back to uh, Georgia's uh, more meta points. Uh, Georgia, you, you uh, talked about uh, the mirror of the archetypal memory there, uh, uh, going back to other uh, history of humankind, maybe. Um, and there is this interesting science fiction story of Buzz Aldrin, he published in 1996, uh, Encounter with Tiba, or Tiber in English. And uh, this science fiction story is about finding a library on, on planetary systems in the solar system on Mars and the moon and going back to 7,000 uh, years BCE uh, on Earth of that time of the history on Earth. And uh, isn't that interesting that that was written, a co-authored by Buzz Aldrin in the science fiction author in 1996? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, at its best, art is both a combination of overshadowing newness, something new to unfold within human consciousness, but blended with something coming up from our past, from our unconscious, into the present moment. And uh, I think we're on the verge of a bigger moment of that. You know, this might be a good time, Holger, for you to bring in the tra the transcript that you've got in your in your notes between Bean and Conrad. Ah, yeah, that was uh, when they returned from the Savannah 3, where they picked up the TV camera. Another interesting uh, detail, you can maybe talk later about it. So when they came back from the Savannah 3 towards uh, Luna Lander on the ending of the EVA 2, they uh, stopped at Blocky Crater, that is a crater on the upper right there on the map, and uh, looked at the crater and uh, noticed the strange rectangular, almost looking basalt blocks there in it. And they started talking and uh, they're taking photos. And in this transcript, this is my item number five, which is on the Apollo Luna surface journal. Its link is there. Surface journal. Then uh, Alan Bean was talking. Uh, he's usually the photographer at that time during the uh, walk. Hey, wait a minute. Look at this. And Pete Conrad, what? And then Alan Bean, I can't forget it. I thought I saw something. Ah. <laughs> well, given Thoughts, that they came with it within like. Some technical they, they, yeah. they, they, they physically, at this part of the uh, timeline, were within a few tens, like 20 feet of this circle and that extraordinarily interesting central object, which we're going to get to shortly, 
So how could they not have seen it? How could they not have explored it? How could they not have walked down a few feet and physically if they established that they could walk in the crater? They were very concerned before they went down to surveyor that they would be very loose and it would you know, create landslides and they might fall over and roll down to the bottom, which is like 50 feet lower than the surrounding you know, lunar landscape. And they found that if they walked sideways, meaning around the rim, they could go down and up with, with no problem at all. So why didn't they visit it? And why didn't they take multiple close-up images of something so obviously artificial? Well, the rest, of that, up, yeah. the, the rest of that conversation looks like they were communicating with each other in code as to not say anything about this. That's my impression. Yeah, something strange is ongoing there. They they looked at the blocky crater, so that was interesting from the geology point of view because it was the first time seeing basalt blocks there and then talk. And then uh, Pete order, uh, asked to take uh, panorama images to Ellen. Ellen started photographing in right angle. And then uh, suddenly <laughs> uh, Pete said, uh, no, wait a minute, uh, where are you shooting at, Al? What? <laughs> so it... Uh, Maybe else noticed something there and was trying to uh, image it, it close up. Uh, but he only took then at least the official list, showed only three wide angle images of the whole surveyor crater panorama with the blocky crater in the, in the bottom. And the, also the, the circle uh, in those uh, wide angle images that is we also showed already before in the items here. Well, if, we, if, if, if we look at your number four, with the long shadow of, of uh, Alan Bean taking the, the panorama. There you can see from Block Crater on the rim is the lunar module. And right there, or circled in your ellipse, is the circle on the moon, the lunar Stonehenge, with the central object obviously the biggest. And when you see the close-ups, the most interesting. And they were within a few tens of feet. And they didn't, A, notice it, and B, as you're going to see in a moment, the footprints on the overhead LRO imagery says they never went near it, whereas we now have, follow up to part one of Stonehenge, we now have actual documented photographic evidence that Alan Bean stood right in front of it and took several close-up images. How come it's not in the transcript and how come you have to really, really look to find the, there are three images taken close up of this object that I call the time capsule, which we'll get to momentarily. But there it is in your number four, you know, right above the long shadow, because the sun was like only 10 degrees above the lunar horizon. The astronauts wanted to land with the sun behind them, very low on the horizon, so they get good shadows, so they could avoid, you know, dangerous rocks or craters or whatever when they were landing manually in the final, you know, tens of feet, the lunar module. So it's all there except for the missing puzzle piece, which is how come they got close-up pictures and there's no LRO imagery from overhead in orbit showing their footprints, which are really hard to hide on the moon. You can't take a branch, you know, or an evergreen tree and erase them like, you know, the Lone Ranger and Tata would do when they were trying to hide from people. No, there's something weird going on here, and it has to do with NASA, and I frankly think with altering 
official imagery of the moon. Another thought is that if we look at Earth and we see a stone circle, we know it's not the only one. So I would bet that there's more of these things on the moon. Oh, I think so too. I think they're memorials for something that's much, much, much more ancient and much older. And I'll bring you know, evidence supporting that into the later conversation. We're literally now down to about five minutes from the bottom of the hour. Maria um, Wheatley has joined us. She is our resident uh, dowser, uh, archaeologist, ancient stone circle expert, stone, Stonehenge aficionado par excellence. And we only got about three or four minutes here till we have to take the break to the bottom. So, Maria, welcome to the other side of midnight. Tease us what you're going to talk about in the next half hour. Unmuting helps. Maria. Boy, we are having communications problems this morning, aren't we? Okay, we have... But, it, but, but I, I have a different topic for later. Okay. Because uh, from, the, from the list of coincidences, on this EVA, when they started, only 15 minutes after they started this EVA, they noticed that both of their cameras malfunctioned or started to malfunction. You mean their film cameras? Yes, and they only had two on the surface. They are outside of the lunar module. So both started to malfunction, and in the end, they forgot a film magazine on the moon in the records. And it was the color magazine. What if this stone circle or artifact circle, because... Given the details I've seen on some of the objects, I don't think they're stones or rocks. I think they're specifically designed as part of this monument. And even if they're lower than the central, they still have detailed geometry. I don't think they're rocks. I think they're something else. And if we had the color imagery, maybe they were brilliantly colored so they would be recognized by future lunar explorers and that's why the claim was made, because we don't know if it's true or not, that Bean and Conrad accidentally left the key Hasselblad magazine with the color imagery of Surveyor and Surveyor Crater and whatever was around it on the moon. In fact, and it, did yeah. they bring it back secretly and NASA just can't dare to let us know? At least officially, it's still on the moon. We now know. And, but also on, from the engineering perspective, the color images were important taken of the surveyor's freelander by the Apollo team because the engineers were looking for them. How much was the plastic degrading over the two years? And uh, they only brought back the TV camera, but not other, uh, only a tiny part of the lander then. Well, one of the interesting things, and we're literally now at the bottom of the hour, so we have to mind our time here. But one of the interesting details of the uh, 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 Apollo 12 crew is they visually reported to Houston that Surveyor, which had been brilliant white, you know, it was painted on all the exposed surfaces with sunlight reflectant, heat resistant white paint, titanium oxide or something. But when they looked at it, and put their visors up so they weren't looking through their gold visors, uh, it looked like it was tan. It looked like it had a day at the beach, and they couldn't decide 
whether the whether it was a coating on the surface or in fact it had changed color the paint had changed color by exposure to intense ultraviolet light of being exposed for a couple of years on the moon okay we're at the bottom of the hour my guests this morning are georgia lambert and um, holger eisenberg and we are waiting for maria to rejoin us her link dropped so when we come back hopefully we will have Marie Louis, Maria Wheatley, I can talk tonight, of course, comparing facets of this lunar Stonehenge, again, that's, that's in quotes, with the extraordinary examples that she has looked at all over the Earth. Stay with us. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, November 4th, 2023. My panelists so far have been discussing the reality, backed up by extraordinary recognizability, intrinsic geometry. Remember Carl Sagan's famous dictum, which I think he published in uh, Cosmos way back when. Intelligent life on Earth first manifests itself in the geometric regularity of its designs. In other words, whether you're a human or as George and I talked about last week, an AI looking at these photographs, and NASA will ultimately abrogate responsibility of humans to computers in AI to, I think we jointly agree, to get out of the paradigm trap of somehow having to admit there's artificial stuff beyond the earth all over the solar system 
as part of their new official Office of Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon. And anomalous phenomena include ruins built by ETs or an ancient terrestrial civilization. I mean, come on. If that's not anomalous, it's overwhelmingly in their wheelhouse. If they live up to their billing. Anyway, back to my panel and Maria. We're still looking to reconnect with Maria. Have you noticed in a lot of the network programs lately that they're having more and more problems with the Internet, with Skype, with Zoom, with all their connections? It's, uh, well, I don't want to sound incredibly conspiratorial, but uh, just saying it's kind of unusual. So who had the floor before we had to go to break? Throw in an art comment here? Yeah. Uh, The idea that some of these stones may have been painted is really intriguing uh, because it's a very human thing. You know, when we look at all of the artifacts from ancient Greece, temples and the statues in particular and this beautiful white marble. Yeah, Georgia, I'm sorry. You're you're fading in and out. I think you're moving away from your microphone. No, I'm not doing a thing. That's weird. Anyway, I'll try to speak up. Okay. Uh, when we see these beautiful statues that are white marble, you know, those were all painted. Oh, garishly painted. <laughs> garishly painted. And they used, of course, the pigments that were available to them. And you saw a lot of red ochre and browns and things like that. Well, uh, Ruggiero uh, has a comment about Neil Armstrong talking about other colors on the moon like brown, which would make sense if they're using pigment that is indigenous. Okay. See, if they're high tech, my feeling was they were not painted because any civilization, you know, bold enough and brash enough to be able to do this had to be a spacefaring technology civilization. You know, we're not talking indigenous uh, in terms of the circle, just the circle. Uh, ancient culture on the moon because there hasn't been possible for that to happen for a very long time millions if not hundreds of millions of years and in that period of time someone with any high-tech background would know that the sun would fade all pigments anything organic whatever so i'm looking at maybe something like anodized colors like you can have anodized aluminum in any shade you want and it will last forever because it's built into the metal it's part of the metallic alloy itself. So if these things had colors, like bright colors, like let's say the central one was brilliant blue or bright red or whatever, it might still be visible even if it wasn't a paint but was intrinsically part of the high-tech manufacture of the monument. Ruggiero has, so, a, has an idea about that. Ruggiero, who is our um, expert medical uh, artist, you can read all everyone's bios. I'm not going to go through them. It's on the website. But what he came to, well, way he came to my attention was he did this extraordinary sketch of the femur on Mars that the Curiosity rover photographed. It's clearly some kind of a human bone down to the exquisite microscopic details as his sketch, backed by a medical background, uh, amply confirmed. And yet NASA is resolutely claiming it's just a rock. Well, as one of the two resident artists 
of the Enterprise mission and the other side of midnight, the other being Andrew Curry. Uh, Ruggiero has been having a lot of fun doing a lot of sketches of what we see in these images, and I can't wait to find out what the bottom line is of all the amazing work that I now see from your posting that you have done. Ruggiero. Well, thank you, Richard, and uh, good evening. Good morning, everyone. Um, <laughs> just touching on what, what you said. Can you hear me okay? Yes, bye-bye. Great, yeah, just touching on what you said, um, and, and Maria, uh, I found an uh, old historical YouTube video of uh, Neil Armstrong, and he's talking about the interesting opt optical features on the moon, where he found it quite difficult at times to judge the distance from the spacecraft to the um, things they were taking, looking at, surveying and taking photos of, um, and that the moon isn't just black, but it's also got shades of brown. He, when he was speaking, his his words were very measured, staccato, measured staccato. Yeah, very <laughs> like you know, someone's having a good old, good old think about how they they present their their data. It, it was almost like doing um, like talking as if you were doing a presentation on the chart. Um, you mean maybe like, like reading from a script? Close, or being advised, you know, based on your model, Richard, if you, you know, looking at it from our perspective, it's like that really looks quite, quite advised on, on what he's coming out with. Um, whereas the other, you know, the other um, astronauts don't really speak so much like him. Uh, but they speak very differently, including Buzz Aldrin, um, when they're being interviewed. But um, I'll try and find that video, and I'll see if I can get keys to attach it to my notes because it's uh, it's good fun to listen to, and um, you know, it's part of the historical ritual. But let's go back. Yeah, to, let let us start with your my, items. And again, the, let me tell people how to get yeah. there. You go to the other side mm -hmm. of midnight dot com. That's our URL. Click on tonight's banner at the top of the page, which has that big blocky artificial looking thing asking the purpose of a structure, you know, a building on the moon. Click on that. That will take you to the guest page. Under the banner on the guest page, click on Ruggiero. That will take you to his items. And item number one is a uh, uh, close-up from the surveyor position about 400 feet away, taken by Alan Bean. It's a close-up of a section of the Hasselblad images that were taken of the circle from the distance of surveyor which as I said, is about 400 feet. And what you've done is to list the photo, then you put mm -hmm. a sketch, an overlay sketch underneath, and then mm -hmm. you go on from there. So take it, uh, you know, assume control. <laughs> okay. So number one, we see this uh, central mound with some, a halo of, of rocks, okay? Or something and, around. Or it. something, right? And within the central mound, there is like a cutoff feature and almost like a, uh, there's a leveled off area on the top. Now, if my hypothesis. It looks like a, like a flat top pyramid. Yes, it, it does. Um, I think it's important not to 
assume shape because there's two possibilities going on here and the very first thing i thought yeah that looks like a, a flat top pyramid you know like the egyptian hats that the the um the priests would wear mm-hmm. we'll get to that in a minute i want you to put that into your mind and um done the drawings things start to be revealed but it's good to let the mind just digest this structure and then you go on to my image number two number 1.1 where i've done an overlay of the central feature you're going to have to click on it and zoom in uh, because which i use easy, tra- really easy mm-hmm. okay so it's almost cartoonish effects which i've done looks like more andrew would do the way i've managed to sketch <laughs> this time you know we, we draw very differently and he, he has a, a wonderful way of using this um uh, animation style style sketching and, and well, it's, it's almost like the stuff we're seeing coming out of courtrooms these days where cameras are not allowed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. Nice one, Richard. So what what I want to go to first. So, yes, I'm interested in what I draw and the detail and geometry in the drawings. But I'm far more interested as if there's a maps between the spaces. So click on. Can you see two lines I've drawn? in the central feature, central of the image. Is this 1.1 or number two? 1.1. 1.1. 1.1. Okay. All right. Oh, yes. You've got, got distances measured. Mm. So the, bit, the, the line that's not on a rock, can you see what I was, how many? Nine, centimeters? It says nine centimeters point to point. Yes. So um, the other, so from, to North Rock to the South Rock, bypass bisecting the one in the middle, on either side. Well, wait, this is rock. not the, the, this is not the scale on the lunar surface. This is the scale on your photograph. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very important because the circle is about thirty feet in diameter. Okay, so all I've done is I've taken a ruler. Or, or you know, ten meters. <laughs> yeah, this is this is the scale I was using on, on my my um my computer. So. Between each rock, I'll just read them out because it's hard to, hard to see. It's 3.5 centimeters exactly, according to my measure, um, rock to rock. Given the fact that they're probably not rocks. Objects. What's it? Oh, thank you. Yeah, objects, wherever they are. Well, no look at your are. geometry. Look at your sketch of geometry. Rocks don't look like this. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the rocks that the astronauts return from the moon, they're all mm-hmm. basically lumpy potatoes. You know, except for some of the basalts, which had fractures. They're basically, you know, globs. They're not geometric. They don't have angles. They don't have replicating. In other words, these things look much more designed than a bunch of random rocks, to me, to my yeah. eye. And, and, and certainly uh, the central feature image, which has got the cross growing through the middle of it, which um, we're going to come on to next, Richard, but what I wanted to show everybody first the audience first is that it appears that there is exact geometry between you know two of those well, two of those features well, hang on, hang on. on. that's a very good point to, to amplify because if in fact the mainstream says oh this is just you know ejecta from a nearby uh impact mm. causing secondaries which is what the mm. rocks from an impact are called falling on the moon and coming to rest what are the odds 
that a random splash of rocks from a cratering event nearby are going to all fall precisely on the measurements that you have found. Yeah, yeah. Zero, zero, <laughs> or point mm. oh 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 oh, and just keep going. More yeah. geometry, well, more geometry. From the previous show, you know that sketch when I did the overlay of your, your image with the, the big boulder to the right hand side mm-hmm. and the circles on the left. I mean, there's geometry in both, but that boulder to the right was appears to be full of uh, geometry. From various, various which we angles. now know from the close-up from Bean, we're going to get to shortly. Okay, so let's uh, let's so we can see the central feature. Let me yep. just close that image down. So we're now going to go on to image two, okay. which I've done an enhanced of that central feature. I just want to commend Holger for the amount of effort and work he's put in because it's going to directly relate to. Uh, something where we're, we're going to look at both his images and mine, or one of his, and then you're going to look at this image too. So what do you see, Richard, and anyone else? Well, I am astonished by the figure you have on the top. I'm absolutely blown that, away by what I'm looking at on the top. I'm not saying that's what that is, but when I first looked at it, uh, that's what I saw, and I just let my hand you know, just do its work, and that's kind of what came into my eye. I've, I've added a you know, bit of artist impression to this, but I kept it as geometric as I possibly could. Just let the pen do the work. Um, when you look at Holger's number, so we've got Hol- Holger's number six. I'm going to go to Holger's number six. And then go back to my number two, the little bit on the top. Okay, Holger's number six. Six, 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 where is six? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, do you want to talk about, uh, Holger, you want to talk about your number six and why it's relevant? Oh, number six is the horoscope. You mean the horoscope? I'm not sure what you're calling it, but it's from the Holy Roman Empire. And ah, yeah, indeed. There is, uh, indeed, it's from 1608. It is a, it is a birth horoscope of uh, General Wallenstein. That is a famous German general in the 1600s uh, of the Holy Roman Empire of German nations. It's the full name. And uh, they, they were deeply into horoscopes and astrology then, like many are today also. And it's an important topic for many. And uh, Johannes Kepler, the famous astronomer who worked uh, as astronomer for the empire at that time, is comparable in position to royal astronomer in England. It's a similar uh, large high position there. And uh, many astronomers combined astrology astronomy at that well, time uh, the, the, the idea there was, was no separation you, between them the idea back then is you had to have a day job and casting horoscopes using celestial mechanics was an easy way to make a little money to keep yourself alive when you were doing your science on the side because science was not supported by the state by the king by the emperor whatever except in rare circumstances so these guys had to live double or even triple lives to stay alive to do their research also, but uh, also because uh, at, that, at that time astrology was about the position of the individual planets and well, the calculation. Well, it still is. The, the question is, is, is there any meaning? Anyway, back to yeah, the, that's back, the other one. Yeah, but uh, back to Ruggiero, uh, you're saying this, yeah. that we're seeing similar geometry 
to a Middle Ages cast horoscope in the structure in the center of the circle on the moon? Possibly. That's what my I, I put that on because that's what my eye came to first when I saw it. When you when you look at you know, you know what I see. What's that, sorry, Richard? I see a double tetrahedron, uh, which is, of course, two intertwined equilateral triangles in a hmm. single plane. The yeah, most familiar three. example in everybody's experience these days hmm. is the official Israeli flag. Yes, you know what right. I see in that? That sure. drawing of the, of the horoscope, the geometry of it? Right. Think three dimensions. Do you remember that little thing that we used to make as kids in grade school called fortune tellers, where you would, it was kind of an origami thing. You would fold paper. They used to be called cootie catchers. Oh, my God, yes. Oh, oh. Do you know what I'm I'm talking about? You're taking me way, 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 way back. (laughs) Ah. And and it was it was a fortune teller because things were written on right. all the inside tabs and it was a way of concealing secret knowledge. Well, if you make this in three D, it becomes a little flat top pyramid. Yeah, yeah. Right. We've got to remember that what I've done I've, is art, but I've let I've, I've let it come out. You know, my subconscious mind looking at it, and then I've added in a bit of extra art, artistic detail, just so people can see. I possibly think is going on there. But what's more intriguing than just that bit on the top, Richard, and elaborate on it, you know, as you please. What's very interesting is down the bottom, I've put a measured line, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a rough outer at eight centimeter. That, that was my first sketch. I was like, no, that's not, that's not quite right. I've got that slightly wrong. But then I put some dots, which puts corner to corner. You'll have to really zoom in and see three little black dots. I, I see them. Right, so if you join dot to dot roughly on my scale that I was using, they are respectively 7.5 centimetres to um, sort of base area. And within this you know, central feature, uh, so within the circle, we're seeing um, exact... Uh, measuring, you know, exactly. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a totally symmetric object. Yeah. yeah. Did you figure That's out the slope angle or, 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 or measure the slope angle or try to? I, I, I didn't, but if, um, by Please. using some um, Pythagoras type stuff, you could, you could work that out. Yeah, easy, easy. Okay. All right, we don't have a lot of time, so moving on, so, number, number okay, three. Okay, we've, right? we've got to get through the image. I'll go faster. So, mound? They're not mounds. Number three. Mounds don't have geometry. Mound, which is the, that's the outside feature one. Rogero. It's not a mound. What shall I call it? An object, you know. Okay, the ob- object number three. Not a, mound. a mound to me is like a, like a lump, you know, like, okay. like the Cahokia mound before they excavated was a ruined, you know, eroded lump of earth stacked up by God knows how many thousand Indians over time mm. back near, near St. Louis. This is not mm. a mound. This is an obvious object, ge- geometrical, 3D, symmetrical. It looks like a building, small one, okay. seven mm. feet in length on, Mar- on, on the moon, but it's a building. It's not a mound. Okay. And this is the one for, for the audience that sticks to the right-hand side. 
Exactly. The it's, the one, it, the it, it's the one I call the time capsule, where the red line that I mm-hmm. have in my number, let me give you the number, number 11. If you look at that first alignment from the stone to the left across the center, mm-hmm. that that arrow, that red arrow, is directly to this much larger object offset by, what, another two diameters? It's like 60 feet away. Mm-hmm. From the circle perimeter, roughly, I'm estimating eyeball here, but it's clearly delineated by an alignment, and it turns out to be a uniquely interesting object on the Chandrayaan imagery, which you did when we heard the first show, and now Mm -hmm. you're looking at the close-ups from um, Alan Bean, the so-called secret hidden photographs that they didn't really put out there. This is a raw version in your number three. It's not a mound. <laughs> Sorry to be a stickler. That's okay. Language is so, important. Uh, Without language, we can't communicate anything. No. So if we click on three, we can see very interesting shape. You know, for a bit of fun, it kind of reminds me of the bent pyramid on um, in Egypt. That's your, yeah, that, that's a, definitely one way to interpret it. <laughs> Well, I also see it. I also see it when I look at both together: the surveyor imagery, the beam distant imagery, and then this close-up. I see it as a rectangular, symmetric structure with like a um, uh, you know slanted roof. Yeah. Well, now you've got to go to my. Uh, is it three point one? It would be. One it would be. Let me look. It would be three point one. Yes. Right. So let's go down to. 3.1, the mound overlay sketch. I'll have to change that to object. <laughs> I want you to zoom. It's all very faint, Richard, but I want you to zoom in and look at what I've done. Yeah, that's exactly what I see. Yeah, because um, not everybody can see geometry coming out of... of, of remember the Boeing, remember the Boeing study. One third of people can see this, just mm. looking. One yeah. third can be taught to see this and one third of the population, according to the Boeing, you know, the people who make airplanes because they were hiring engineers that could do before CAD and computers, 3D geometry on a on a drafting table. Mm-hmm. One third of the people they measured, even engineers, could never do 3D geometry in their head. There's a good book for people who are interested in stuff like that. It's called Visual Thinking, which I'm partway through. I'll elaborate on that later. Right, I want you to go to the top left-hand side of that image that we're on, and you'll see a rectangle. Yep. Now, if you were to able to bring that rectangle down, which I've got some arrows pointing, and it says bilateral symmetry on my sketch, they are the exact measurements of that rectangle. On the photograph. The, the centimeter on the, on the photograph is the scale on your screen, not the scale on the moon. We need to... Keep emphasizing that, okay? Yeah, yeah. But Um, given that we're talking about relative scale, mm -hmm. the actual scale is almost irrelevant. You know, geometry is geometry, whether it's, Mm -hmm. you know, an inch across or 10,000 feet. Mm -hmm. And um, so that, this is the second time I've drawn this object, but this is from now the very different angle that we've got. And we're seeing that same geometry and exact measure coming up. Um, within this object, it was harder for me. I didn't was unable to 
accurately measure the um, the horizontal middle line from point to point. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but because of the relevance, it's, it's, it's just the angle's wrong. But we, we can see, you know, we've got the left-hand face, which is the sliding up face, um, and we can see that geometry or not. Sorry for my language, I'm so tired, Richard. I've, uh, it's, it's five o'clock something in the morning at the moment. Left-hand feature, the upper section, I'll call that. Oh, we're still we talking 3.1. We're on 3.1. Yeah. We're going to move. Um, okay, we got three minutes at the top of the hour. I know. Let's move down. We can also rediscuss these points. Yeah, of course. Uh, 4.1, I've. Um, Which is the over. from a different. Yeah, yeah, it's from a different sketch. I've, I've just added around features, but have I forgot any more? There's some other interesting stuff, but it's not really related to the circle. But um, I tell you what. What is going on on set image number five? Well, let's not get to that because we only have two minutes and we're basically 30 seconds away from the break. So let's okay. hold it there because number yeah. five is, is, you know, deserves a huge amount of discussion all by itself. I'm hoping Andrew was with us when we come back. Uh, my guests this morning are Ruggiero and Holger and Georgia and Ron Gerbron has peeked in a couple of times. You're on the other side of midnight. We shall return. other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel 
or as an environment for your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this uh, Saturday night, now Sunday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. The Witching Hour, literally the other side of midnight. My guest this morning, too numerous to mention, go to the website, take a look. You'll recognize their voices. Occasionally, they'll say who they are, and you can pick them out that way. They are our family, our research family, and we are making stunning breakthroughs because of their contributions in a very multifaceted, multidimensional, multi-scientific investigation. So, Ruggiero, you're on. Hello again. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, so we were touching on the, the outstanding array of geometry within all the f- structures we're up to our eyebrows in ordered geometry. Come on. It's like, <laughs> how much does it take? You know, it's the old, uh, how many, whatever does it take to uh, to do something like psychiatrist in Marin County? Does it take to change a light bulb? Only uh, one, yes, but the it. light bulb has to want to change. So we've got all this geometry. You're seeing mm. pyramidal compared to rectilinear. You're getting absolute symmetry in measurements on a screen in terms of mm-hmm. relative scale. What I yeah. want to know is what the hell is this building doing on the moon and why does the circle right next to it, which appears to me to be a lot younger. Did you get the impression this thing, the what you call the mound, what I call the time capsule or the building, is very, very old? Yeah, well, just look at the level of erosion if this is a structure it's like you know this stuff's basalt we assume well but we can't assume anything we have no idea what it's made of we have no idea what it's made of it could be metal it could be stone if 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 they're Mm -hmm. smart they build it out of stone because stone is almost immortal Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it could be anything it could be unobtainium it it could be the (laughs) you know the the thing that is needed in nuclear reactors on Earth, because if you make enough of it and you paint it on a nuclear reactor, there is zero you know, neutron emissions. In other words, we're dealing with an extraterrestrial technology, the building. It could be mm. anything extraordinary that we need here on Earth, like yesterday. Okay, so let's, let, let's, um, let's assume one model. Just say it was battle. And they're because the moon's you know heavily basalt, and right. they are so they've, they've, they've made it for eternity in stone, right? If you look at uh, I'll, I'll bring Egypt in in a minute, but if we look at this this rock, it's it's heavily eroded but maintains absolute geometry. And in some of the oldest stuff in Egypt, it's got like this very unusual um, degradation within the granite that almost looks like it's been um, heat melted. You seen those, that stuff on some of those YouTube videos? 
that Brian Forrester, for example, is doing. Yeah, right, right. And, you, and you, you can see granite start to crumble away. That's all being about, a, is it a seven on the most scale, Richard? Right. Yeah. The most scale is a scale of hardness, like, like uh, uh, you know, what is that very soft material you can cut with your fingernail all the way up mm-hmm. to like diamond that you can't cut with almost anything. So it's, yeah, diamond's a ten. Yeah. Okay. So. And, and basalt. So yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Basaltic rock is a volcanic rock. It's got lots of iron in it. Um, some titanium on the moon. It's it's very hard. But even over immense amounts of time, all this stuff will go away if you beat it up enough with micrometeorite hypervelocity impacts. However, this all this thing is, it's maintained its geometry, which yeah, tells me seat. it might be something that NASA would want to go and bring a piece back if they could get a piece off it, because it could be extraordinary new exotic ET high-tech materials, not rock at all. Yeah, by your model, all these things can't be discounted. So let's, let's go on to... If we do a final click on 3.1, and now let's look at the central feature, because... Well, let's not I look at the it... central feature yet. I want to give it some context, okay? okay? Yeah, let's, All right, let's, let's, let's yeah. save that. So anything more you want to say about 3.1? Well, yeah, well, I was going to talk about the geometry within it, and I think Maria... Go for it. Go for it. Uh, so I've now done an artist's impression of a, of a, like a two, two-tiered style pyramid. So... Um, you can see the little dotted lines coming up to reach a central pinnacle. Yeah. So, so it looks like it's, it looks like it's a, a symmetrical pyramid with mm. a slope angle that we haven't determined yet, but it's mm. sitting on a on a base which is also mm. symmetrical but is basically orthogonal to the lunar surface. In other words, mm. it's vertical. Mm. And then you've got this line that... So, so I'm going to be my own biggest critic because I think it's really important. Go ahead. I'm going to be my own biggest critic. So with, with the lines, so we've got... Uh, we'll start from the right-hand side. Uh, that line goes all the way up to the center, to the middle. I've just labeled them all, all point A. I should have done ABC. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then we've got the, the middle line, which is the same as the right-hand line. But then we've got the left-hand line, which is slightly different in assumption, um, because if we, it would indicate, I think, a, a, a two-stage or a third stage um, of the uh, of the pyramid structure. So we, we've got the rectangle angle at the bottom. We've got a slope angle which stops halfway up, and then we've got a third angle that would come in. At the top. Which we Can could narrow what? down if we had complete 360 images, which NASA, of course, has, yeah. and they won't show them to us. Well, Richard, when we look at the drawing I did the, for the other show, we can see that it's absolutely hinting of these, you could call them folds in the, in the, in the geometry. Totally. Yeah, or ch- changes in slope angle. So there's, there's a lot to play with in this, and it's very interesting how, even though this is a battered rock structure objects um it's maintaining the the geometry throughout so that's uh, do you want to say anything more on no, this rock no 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 we, we we will come back to it toward the end of the show we've got uh, a little less than an hour to do some really amazing things and to prove to georgia why she's here yeah, okay so, so, let us go to number four of holger's items 
okay. where he took the I forget which which image uh, what what number it's probably the, oh yeah forty eight seven one forty three those are the magazine numbers and the frame numbers in the various magazines in case you want to decode NASA's nomenclature AS twelve refers to Apollo Saturn twelve forty eight is the fortieth magazine seven one four three put that into Google it will take you to a whole bunch of NASA sites and other sites where endless copies of these photographs are reproduced. So on number four, in the upper right hand on the, on, the, on the horizon, you can see the LEM. Then you see Holger's ellipse, which is circling the circle, uh, not all of it, but, but most of it, with the biggest object, which uh, Ruggiero shows is exquisitely geometric in an earlier incarnation exists. So now what you want to do is you want to go to my items, which is item number 10, okay? Click on number 10. This is now, on the right is the original raw bean Hasselblatt image as NASA has sent reproductions both, you know, physically in libraries as prints and digitally through the internet all over the world. That's what their close-up that Bean took from the other side. I want to stress this, from the other side, the sun side of the central object of the circle, the one that from the shadowed side looks like a pyramid, uh, and from this side, it, it, it looks different. It looks quite different. Now, the object on the left in my composite frame is the enhancement I worked really hard to extract from the image on the right. And in fact, I, I kind of cheated, which isn't really cheating. I'll explain why. I took two images that Bean had taken from that distance of block crater of the center of the circle that he apparently didn't know was there. And I enlarged them to the same scale exactly. And when you, when you superimpose in astronomy or in any you know, science, two different images, what you do is you enhance the signal you bring out details that are there on the on the object you're you're recording, and you average the noise. So the name of the game here is to increase the signal above background noise, which clearly NASA has introduced deliberately into these pictures taken around the circle and the time capsule. They've deliberately made them almost impossible to reconstruct. Of course, they never imagined in 1969. 70, 71, 72, that ordinary people, the citizens who are paying for everything they do, would ever have on their desktop more computer power than a thousand times the computer power in the Apollo command module, the lunar module, etc. They never imagined that this kind of democratization of technology that could get to the truth would ever be in the hands of, as they used to say, the great unwashed, but it is. So I applied it and I produced what you see in the side panel of item number uh, 10. And now what we want to do is go back to Ruggiero, who has done a deeper analysis of number 10. So you click on his name in the uh, listings in the, uh, on the page frequently and go to his item number five. This is now a close-up from our work of the central object 
in the center of the circle with the shadow. Remember, the same sun angle. Sun hasn't moved. Moon hasn't rotated. It's just a few minutes later than the image is taken from the other side. So the shadow moves on the on the moon so slowly because it takes a month for it to rotate, you know, 360 degrees once. So in the space of an hour or two, it moves just a few tenths of a degree. So now that we've got the proper setup, what are you seeing on this completely other side of the central monument in the center of the circle? Rogero? Sorry, sorry, I was on mute. <laughs> um, hello. That's going to be on everybody's one. tombstone. Sorry, I'm on mute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so um, yeah, I, I didn't put my sketch in. I forgot to uh, I put, forgot to put my sketch on. But I'll talk about what I'm seeing. Um, I see a raised right angle triangle. Sorry, I, I see a raised um, right angle. You mean on the right-hand side of this image? Well, let's go roughly to the, to the center, and there's, a, there's a, um, a horizontal line and a vertical line, right? And it's also slightly raised up. Right. Yeah. Um, geometry. We're back to geometry, Rich. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I couldn't pull that much more out of it. Other than, um, you know, we're seeing uh, a right angle um, staring at us. Um, I'm going to need your, you know, your feedback on that because I'm going to have to go back and do a second sketch on this. Apologies. Geometry is what I'll hand over to you. Well, again, redundant geometry. Because remember now, we're seeing that the two sides of this are mm. very different. There's a front and a back. And the front, which is the direction that you'd be looking from the time capsule, the big object outside the circle, that mm -hmm. sees this side. The surveyor and Bean's photographs from farther away see the other side, which of course is in the shadow, a little bit of which you can see poking out on the right because of the angle where Bean was standing by Block Crater when he saw mm -hmm. this from that side. Do We don't have Andrew with us yet, do we? I don't think so. Yeah, this has been the hardest object for me to to draw and, and pull anything out of. Um, all I could really get out of it um, was that that right angle. Well, this is very controversial because both Greg Ahrens, who could not be with us tonight because he's doing still working on the alignments, he'll be with us on our next show, and Andrew, who I talked to to earlier in the week, when they saw this, when I sent this around as part of email discussions that we have had uh you know for the last week or so on various finds both of them independently of me which makes three of us we see a series of human or humanoid faces in this object with mm -hmm. one on the lower left being the most prominent but it appears to be companion with one just to the left of it at the edge of your triangle going up slanting from lower left to upper right. And it's the same kind of dual or multiple artwork representing facial images that we have all seen over and over again 
on Mars. So you one, know, Richard, yes, Richard, Richard, I was, yeah, I was going to uh, make a comment about my own pareidolia. Um, it's but not pareidolia. I, I can prove it. Okay. I can see uh, just the whole thing is a conglomerate of faces. Yes. Ding, 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 ding. It's a monument yeah. to something with personal representation of facial expression, which is how in our other conversations we've had over the several months now, life, consciousness, souls, whatever, manifest in three dimensions. Without a face, you have no identity. Your identity is reflected in your face. Remember that whole cliche that goes around how they've had numpteen photographs showing people and their pets and how they look kind of like their dog or cat or whatever if they live with them a long period. In other words, facial structure is mutable. It's outside reflective of inside in this model. And isn't it interesting that the central monument of the circle on the moon on this side, the northeast side, which faces the dawn is and anything rising over the horizon is filled with identity of different kinds of faces. And now that makes four, because you and I haven't talked about this, four different observers with artist background all are seeing the same thing. Yeah. Richard? Yes, Ron? Uh, keep feeling slighted by that. You could, uh, uh, you can you could break add in. Me to the, you could add me to the list of list. No, no, no. You could add me to the list of miscellaneous artists. You, I did. I did get scouted by Disney. Once. Well, you worked in an uh, art but, gallery. Of course, you're an artist. Come on. That too. Well, anyway, anyway, the point is, uh, the fused facial structures. You know, the multi-faces. Right. Uh, is a standard part of the ancient artwork. I have looked and looked. I have not found some scholarly paper indicating the the hemispheres of the mind to the or anything like that. But it's real. It's it's part of that artwork. All it does is affirm that this is part of the old civilization. You will always see multiple faces. The set, the rarest thing is a singular portrait face. In that. In that well, wait, wait, wait. it applies we, we, here too. We we, 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 here we, too. we do have single statuary like Nefertiti. We've got Akhenaten. We've got a whole bunch of Egyptian artwork where it's basically one plane, two dimensional. That's one. Wait figure. a minute. Yeah. Well, nothing counts except what's off planet at the moment because there are you have a you don't have a complete fusion of that of those methodologies on Earth. Ah. You know, that's, that's not you know, a, that's elsewhere. Ron, 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 that's not a trivial point. That's huge. That's enormously important. Why okay, did our artwork, good. why, if we're looking at the family model, we are the Martians, yeah. why did our artwork yeah. in ancient terrestrial civilizations change so dramatically, but what we found over and over again all over Mars? Mm hmm. Yeah, obviously, I've got a huge catalog of examples of it from Mars, and I was just working on one the other day that's really What I cool. find stunning is but, that four independent, we don't have a lot of time, four independent yeah. observers, you, me, um, Greg Aaron, and, Georgia, mm -hmm. Andrew, all have looked at this and said, 
oh my God, there are faces there and we're fighting ways to resist the pareidolia idea that we're just projecting. No, we're not projecting. And I will tell you why. Look at the prominent face on the lower left-hand uh, corner of, of uh, Ruggiero's triangle near the, near the base, near the linear uh, lower reflectivity base. Everybody see that face? Yeah. Do you yeah. see all the geometry around it? It's mm-hmm. like it's framed. It's like something is trying to call attention both beneath the chin and above the head that's different about that face than any of the others. It's clearly part of the mechanics of the monument. It's not projection. It's being highlighted. It's being centralized. So you're supposed to pay attention. And it's the clearest, because I think it's the youngest, of the other representations on this same monument. Could be the lighting. No, same lighting. I'm, You're looking just a you know a foot or well, two. Well, overall, it can be very subtle. No, no, I'm not disputing. I'm not disputing that. I'm just saying that. Yeah, those are the kinds of things that affect that sort of artwork. But you did. You left a question hanging. Like, why is it like that? The ancient artwork. Uh, we lost our telepathy, and so there was. There's a whole. Well, that's your model. Channel. So this is Ron's theory. Okay, go ahead. Well, you have to have models. Yeah, that's it. Of course, it's a model. Um, I mean, I don't start seeing, if I had a telepathic moment, that doesn't mean I'd start seeing everybody's face in a blurry fashion. But the idea that you could be thinking of two and drawing two at the same time, uh, it's, it's interrelated in there somehow. Our thought processes thing that happened in the past. How's that? That's Is that a, vague that's enough? A, that's a good model. I have a very the, different. The, metaphys- the metaphysical model is that humanity was at one time very, very connected and very, very psychic, and that had to go so that we could develop uh, individuality. But that we come back together as a group on a higher turn of the spiral with telepathy as we move into this next age, and this would be hmm. telepathy complete with individuality and group consciousness both together. See, so evidence for evidence that those thoughts have passed through other heads. Yeah, in the of course. Past. It's, although I, I, I gotta say, I gotta put that with the hierarchy of angels stuff. There's a limit to how much people could actually make a model into something real just because they figured they filled in all the blanks. You know, there's, there's a limit, and so on that model, yes, clearly that sort of happened. Georgia, but uh, as to the specifics of it and the metaphysic thing, somebody there wanted it to all be rigid and formalized. And when uh, you say there, where's there? Uh, in the overall model of metaphysical reality. Well, 3D is solid and you know different than hyperdimensional physics, etc. You know. Yes, that is, but a but a uh, a presented fact uh, like. Well, we had to move on or away from this particular fusion power. See, I don't know whether uh, we had to do anything. I'm just thinking we don't understand our history. Well, I know, at all. but the model said yes. No, I, I yeah. know. I'm not but, accusing but, but, you but, but that's I'm not only accusing one George model. of anything. Just, I'll give you an example. Kinthea, I think, is uh, is with us. When Kinthea, so, you might want to come on here and talk about when you were doing the face, the, the clay modeling, and looking at those photographs over and over and over again. I think you discovered there were more facial resemblances 
than just one. And I was able to stand up at the UN from my observations and claim definitively there were at least two, a hominid and a feline in the biggest monument on Mars we've found so far, the face at Sidonia. But if you rotate the face of Sidonia with the best imagery now, there's all kinds of other potential artwork that the critics will dismiss as paradoia, and I would think is part of the built-in nature of the artwork, Georgia, which is trying to tell us something transdimensional about how consciousness is projected from higher dimensions into our 3D. Right. 50 bucks to anybody that can prove to me that it's pareidolia. I don't care how you pronounce it. I'll pronounce it my way. You can pronounce it. Millennial, mega year-long clock to maybe tell us when this site, not just the objects, but the site itself was somehow sacred, which brings to my mind from data I'll present momentarily, this may in fact have been a sacred cemetery for beings who chose to be buried at this location on the moon in celebration of whatever the sacred purpose was for the extraordinarily ancient building, the square foundations of which now form the aligned 45 degrees sunken surveyor crater on the moon the floor is open we would be back at the encounter with Tiber story then because uh, the expedition going to the moon finding the library there in Buzz Aldrin's story was also seeing graves of those who built it bingo now if you look at Let's stay with Ruggiero. I think it's number, uh, hang on, hang on. I got to get rid of this here and I have to mute that and reduce that. Um, His number, uh, number three. Okay. Everybody with me? Number three. If you look at number three, if you look at the broad surroundings of this wide angle, the building, the pyramid is distant. Um, and it's the frame is overexposed because being, uh, he said he deliberately overexposed these for some reason and other parts of the landscape, you will see what to me look like other buried single faces, half buried in the lunar surface. If we put an imaginary clock, you know, just above his number three, there are these little crosses. There's a, cross right above uh, a big one on the film and there's a smaller one below if we take the cross to be a clock where the top part is midnight the bottom part is six the right hand bar is three and the left hand bar is nine at the 230 position the largest objects going from the center of the of the building or the cenotaph the, the the structure holding in this model a sarcophagus of some actual physical being, a burial. At the 230 position extending to the right, there is this large, very eroded, it looks to me, 
very misshapen face. And directly above it, toward the horizon, at about the 11 o'clock position, there's another one. And going back to the monument or the building, if you go at about 2 o'clock, you pass an object with a nice shadow uh, looking kind of angular and geometric. And then just beyond that, there appears to be another face half buried in the lunar surface, this one looking for all the world like an ancient alien gray. And we can do that with other objects on this landscape, particularly if you leave Holger's items and you go back to mine, and this now will take you to another angle. You want to look at item number 14. 14 is of the uh, building, just the front, uh, being stepped, obviously, to the left and toward it. And so you're seeing it in the lower left-hand corner in close-up. But beyond it, you see these other faces half buried in the landscape, and they look incredibly eroded but very bilaterally symmetric of a human or humanoid face, which led me, even before Greg mentioned it, to think of, to consider the idea that maybe this entire landscape is a sacred space where those of high station were allowed to be buried in the vicinity of what extraordinary ancient structure was being verified by the outlines of the sunken surveyor crater. And all of this is speculation, freely admit, but all of it is testable. All we have to do, all Elon Musk has to do, is take one of his starships and land close to Surveyor Crater with some astronauts and we'll know everything. That either we are correct or we're totally incorrect, but it's not beyond our purview to within the next few years to know if this is a stunning ancient commemorated circle in the innermost of NASA secret rituals. The floor is open. Um, wish I were here. Yes. Uh, definitely bizarre, Richard, but now you mentioned those face structures, I do see the symmetry within each of those rocks you pointed out. All we had to do was have him walk over and take a face-on picture of each one. Yeah. Yeah. I discovered yeah. decades ago that NASA lies about the number of pictures it takes. I've immortalized this record, documented by lab results, by NASA, you know, correspondence, by, you know, uh, certificates, by, by, you know, just, just receipts of the photographs that I ordered from Houston and Goddard and JPL, et cetera, et cetera. There are so many pictures, duplicates with the same frame number of different things in the NASA archive that NASA never publicly admits to. So my theory is that because we had two NASA missions of all places go to this location on the moon, not once, but twice, something extraordinarily important resides or resided in their minds of this location. And I think it's because it's an ancient sacred cemetery of 
giant whatever, aliens, ETs, human beings from some previous, you know, Lemurian, whatever you want to imagine would be sacred in NASA's ritual history. They went there because this was and is a sacred space, and they only pretended to be doing the things that the timelines and the logbooks and all that document, but in fact, they had a secret reason for going there with human beings and for them not to document the hell out of the sacred space to me is more impossible to believe than six impossible things for the white queen in Alice in Wonderland to believe before breakfast. Yes. Maybe the whole, maybe the whole of the moon is a cemetery. Well, is the whole of the earth a cemetery? Well, there's enough cemetery. In other words, any place where well, humans, no. any, any place where beings live, if they don't, if they're not immortal, if they don't live forever, will probably become at some point a a cemetery, or a reposing place, or a you know cenotaph. Can I be a devil's advocate here for a second? Absolutely. I love a metaphysician who's a devil's advocate. <laughs> We're Uh-oh. presupposing that they have burial practices similar to ours. Now, even on our planet, there are other types of leaving the body, like by fire, by cremation, by Viking funerals, by the sky burials of the Tibetans. The Tibetans. So we're assuming that they have burial practices similar to ours, which could be if we are related, but... Well, hang on, hang on. That, that's a perfectly plausible, brilliant idea, which is testable. What I'm seeing in number 14 is a series of really interesting but not really human faces. And some of them are much more human than others. I got a sudden inspiration the other day. Why do we call granite markers on terrestrial gravestones headstones? What if? Well, well it, if you, it, it, it could go back to the Celts who believed that the seat of the soul was in the head, and when they took their their uh, the heads of their enemies in battle, they nailed them to the doors, and that was a doornail. A doornail was not a nail for a door; it was what you nailed on the door, which was your enemy's head. And if the head represents the consciousness of the being, right? If, if this is if these are buried beings under this landscape, what better? memorial than to put some representation they actually look like in three-dimensional artistic form well the egyptians did it didn't they yes yes over and they over and a... over again oh yeah again i'm not yeah, married Egypt... to this my idea tonight was to throw yeah. out the most interesting far out hypotheses which is why i wanted georgia to be with us because the idea of taking terrestrial analogs and saying they apply one-to-one to what we're seeing on the moon is, at the very least, a little naive. Because, if anything, I can say the moon stuff came first. The stuff on Earth is second. So are we looking at templates for what happened in terrestrial cultures, prescinding from this one extraordinary example, which never seems to end in terms of detail, that is surprising? right there where two NASA missions were absolutely deliberately targeted. 
And why did they pick that spot in the first place? Well, yeah. And and, uh, by the way, do you Georgia know? Has, by the way, do you know huh? that they did not land where they wanted to, which raises another level of mystery. If you look at the NASA archives and the data, when Holger, of course, has done this as much as I have, it turns out that Surveyor Three was targeted for the same locality, but 2.8 miles away. Now, if they had landed 2.8 miles away, we would not be having this discussion. Nobody would ever look at this piece of real estate until the time when AI can look at every square inch on super, you know, future imagery of, of the moon and Mars and whatever, and give us a machine calculation at quadrillions of flops per second as to what's out there and what's not. But hang on, something, something, let me finish, please. Something guided surveyor to land here. My theory is they had help and that if we had access to the raw engineering data from the surveyor mission as it was going, you know, from Earth to moon in three days, we would find during one or two of the mid-course corrections a little extra oomph imparted by something outside of NASA's technology that guided them deliberately, specifically to this location on the moon. So a manned mission, an Apollo mission as part of the plan could follow. Now, was that the secret space program? Maybe. Was that ETs? Maybe. Was it a combination? Maybe. In other words, we have a lot of work to do, but I don't want to constrain our models by the idea Oh, this couldn't happen here. Uh, there should be a certain amount of uh, reach available on even on the LRO um, strips. What do you mean by images? Well, if they say if you say if you center uh, your view of the L of the L rock material on the circle, right? You know as uh, then you should be able to, on that same go-round, uh, 2.8 miles in any direction from there uh, shouldn't be over the edge, as it were. That should be on that same one. So there, there's no reason why we can't look and see what was supposed, where they were supposed to be. Yeah, I don't know. the. Well, actually, we do have the coordinates. They were aiming, mm-hmm. for, they were aiming for 3.3 degrees south. Three, 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 ritual thirty-three, yeah. and they and they and they missed it by two point eight miles. But of course, if they'd breached three point three, it would have been nothing there. My presumption. The real thing, the real MacGuffin, is here. So how mm. did they navigate here when they didn't know here was here, unless they did, and they had higher technological help to reach exactly where they really wanted to be aiming oh i don't have a problem with any of that i'm just thinking well i do well it's equally likely that the moon is slightly shifted in position from where it was when that would have been there yeah but look you know something in 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 navigation in space called cep 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 the letter c e p you know crinolation exegesis principle, CEP. 
It's shorthand, an acronym for circular mm-hmm. error probability, meaning if you aim at a certain point with any mission, the odds are that you will wind up close, but you're not going to ever get the cigar. You're never going to get right on the target within, you know, 200 feet like they did twice with two different okay. missions. So somebody had to know something, and my model Anybody can object, of course, is they have secret ancient texts that say exactly what was where in terms of current coordinates. They did the best level effort, and they knew they could count on a little help to get down exactly where they wanted if they could get sufficiently close enough to hide the help under the engineering, which they have never declassified, even though they're NASA, and they should. Something uh, helped. I was going to say, Holger, Holger, you were thing on my mind. Holger, if you can go and find (laughs) engineering from the Surveyor 3 transit from Earth to Moon and the mid-courses, and do they report any anomalies like more thrust, different angle, whatever, so they were helped to get exactly where they wanted to go, which brings me, by the way, to the anomaly about the landing. Everybody by now should know that the Surveyor 3 landing almost crashed. They bounce three times. Why? Because their radar, which was supposed to tell them when they were like 10 feet above the surface and cut off the veneer rockets and let them, you know, fall under one sixth gravity to the moon's surface so that the rockets wouldn't stir up dust. Those rockets and that computer loop failed. And they blamed it on anomalous reflections from the lunar surface. I will go them one better. I will claim that they were getting anomalous reflections from what's underneath the surface, which is the buried angular construction blocks of the ancient, ancient temple foundation covered by several feet of regolith, which was transparent to the surveyor's primitive radar. And that's why it didn't get the cutoff because the reflections from landing on an artificial site underneath the soil confounded their very primitive computer feedback loop in 1967. Again, all and, testable yeah. someday. Yeah, they could have conf- they could have compensated for it. It was just unexpected. Exactly. And they had no time to compensate because the computer was too slow and too primitive. I think Holger has something. They, they needed those uh, 100 feet uh, lateral movement in the end because without the 100 feet from the two hops during landing, we would never see those uh, images from inside the crater with the ring structure. Without that final hop, would have landed on, on the uh, crater rim and would not be able to look inside it. Sure, all they had to do was look down. If they landed on the rim like the LEM, they were, in fact, that's where they landed. They landed literally much upslope, almost on the rim. In fact, it's like somebody wanted them to land on the rim, and they just kind of missed, as, as a, you know, the Get Smart said, by that much. <laughs> so they bounced twice. No, I'm sorry, three times. That could also be that they needed this, uh, but it was a strange bounce landing. Yeah, that's indeed. Uh, None of <laughs> their other missions. None of the other surveyor missions ever had a problem. 
Now, there there is a big difference, by the way, between the surveyor missions and the current crop of missions that keep failing, except for the Indians to land successfully on the moon using radar. You, you remember, Holger, what the detail is? The, the Indian, they added a, a separate sensor for the last one at the red, so they improved the sensor because the normal radar was apparently not sufficient. Yeah, now, no, but that's not the difference. The difference is all subsequent lunar missions, either government, private, attempting to land unmanned spacecraft on the moon, have tried to do it by going first into lunar orbit and then descending in a parabolic arc. The surveyor missions, by contrast, went directly from Earth orbit to a direct ascent to the moon and landed vertically, did not go into orbit, came straight down toward their target and missed it by 2.8 miles in the surveyor case. But they were direct descent. And so the anomalous properties of the putative dome did not really interfere. What interfered with their landing was what they saw in the final, you know, 30 seconds when they were within 100 feet or so of what's ever buried underneath the regolith, which bounced back the radar beams so confusingly because they were not expecting geometry foundations buried under the surface, and it almost ruined the mission. Yeah. Somehow that all makes sense in a Jules Verne sort of way. Yeah, it's it's I like tried. if they came in, yeah, if they came in on a, a, a parabola of some sort. Um, That's what I'll they take did. A curve. Yes. Then uh, the the likelihood, if there's anything that would confound their instrumentation, uh, the likelihood of that problem being additive, being multiplexed, being uh, so compounded by the longer entry phase uh, that it completely bollocked up the onboard computer. That works. That's exactly what I've been saying. <laughs> oh. Indeed, back, back then in 1967, they did a direct uh, trajectory even without a parking orbit in Earth. So it was direct from launch, yeah. 65 hours, 2.7 days, to the moon and today how long does it take and today the to russians, get there <laughs> and the russians the soviet union slash russians who mm -hmm. succeeded in landing all their luna and lunacod robots and rovers they did the same thing they did not go into orbit they did a direct approach three minutes to close oh thank you so we've got three minutes how do we want to spend three minutes georgia you've that includes music Okay, thank you. I'm watching my clock. So, any final comments from anybody? Uh, just, uh, Jerry, just Holger's transcript said that they, Bean and uh, his partner said that this is uh, the most interesting crater that they've uh, that they've seen. Now, who who said that? Uh, on Holger's tran transcript. Yeah. Oh, oh! You mean yeah. you mean in terms of the yeah. uh, surveyor crew, the, the surveyor, the the yeah. Apollo yeah. 12 crew? Yeah. 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 Well, we know why, and we also can kind of read between the lines that there's a lot of stuff that they were talking to each other in code that they were not sharing with the open radio loop all over the world, right, Holger? 
Yeah, and they, they damage the TV camera direct after landing, then they malfunctioned two of their cameras, fortunately got one camera running, they lost a film, uh, color film on the moon, <laughs> so what, what Well, wait, 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 you just, you just raised a really interesting thing. Alan Bean inadvertently, we're told, aimed the color TV camera at the sun, destroying it so that we couldn't get any images, live images from the surface of the moon for the several hour EVA. I had to create all kinds of simulations out at Bethpage, Long Island at uh, uh, Grumman for CBS because we had no video. Hey, I want to thank everybody tonight. Uh, Ron and Holger and Georgia and uh, Cynthia popped in there for a second and Ruggiero and uh, who am I missing? Holger, did I mention Holger? Um, anyway, you can look on the list. We had some of our players not able to participate tonight because of communications difficulties. So until tomorrow night, remember, same time, same bat channel, we'll be back with Stephen Bassett and Disclosure, the latest details. Good night, everyone.